We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna Essentially, this is no risk. It's a seventh round pick in the 2020 draft for a guy that, as you noted, Rhett, could still have a lot to give. He was a first-round pick by the Browns in 2016. Bean also made the point that John Dorsey wasn't the GM of the Browns then. So he's not as attached to this player as perhaps a GM who drafted him would be. So you're right. This is an opportunity, certainly an opportunity to help a passing offense over the past five years, the worst in the league. Again, that predates Bean and Sean McDermott and an awful lot of the players here, but certainly an area where the, the Bills are looking to make great improvements. Corey Coleman expected here today, does still have to pass a physical, but certainly looks like he would be uh, at the, on the practice field tomorrow for the Buffalo Bills. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pile Report podcast. I am your host, Bills season ticket holder, Drew Beer. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Kim Jones from NFL Network discussing this week's trade. I love it because... Brandon Bean, not the only person wheeling and dealing this weekend. <laughs> Me, Saturday, I got I was Ubering in uh, Orchard Park. I never Uber in the South Towns. <laughs> I Ubered a, a trio of ladies over to the Transit Music Lounge. Uh, one of them asked me for my number. Awesome. So, well, good news is I gave her my number without vomiting, because that's happened before. Bad news is she hasn't texted me yet. Because <laughs> she saw your... St- what happened was she thought you looked attractive when the car was dark. And then when the light came on, when she opened the door, she's like, oh, Jesus, what did I do? So it's like, it like the episode of Seinfeld. Look here. at all the product in that guy's hair. Oh. It's because her mother took her phone because she, you were dropping her off at a violin lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we have Hashtag Sports Mario Granada in studio with us tonight. Mario Granada. I'm much happier here. He is a, a vastly superior machine. The Sunday Drive. We hope for many successful years of happiness and prosperity to Kia Motor Company. Comes on me the hashtag sports. I'm not fine. I sell fucking Kia. I got your picture. <laughs> 
one of my favorite intros I've ever made. <laughs> ever. Ever. I'm not fine. I sell fucking gear. Folks, that's right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Mario Granada from the Sunday Drive over at Hashtag Sports, who does in fact drive a Kia. He is in studio with us tonight. Mario, how are you doing? I can't breathe. <laughs> it's great to be here. Guys, we are here to talk all things football, and as the intro maybe alludes to, we have some things to talk about this week. Guys, we're going to kick this off by launching right into this week's Bills News Update. The Buffalo Bills have acquired wide receiver Corey Coleman from Cleveland. I I just want to preface, is this a lesson in what Brandon Bean is capable of? Sunday morning, it was announced the Bills had made a trade to acquire former Cleveland Browns wide receiver Corey Coleman. Coleman, former 15th overall pick, taken after the Browns traded with the Eagles, passing on quarterback Carson Wentz. The guy immediately becomes the fastest wide receiver on the Bills roster. But he also comes with his share of baggage, which could kind of weigh down the prospects of what he's getting into. But trying to parse the reasons behind the trade have left a lot of people around the country, national pundits, local radio hosts, Bills fans, Browns fans, everybody sort of scratching their heads. So I want to break this down with you guys first by taking a look at Coleman as a player. It's hard to gauge exactly what he is at this point in his career in terms of his NFL talent because, I mean, first of all, he was talented enough to be drafted at 15th overall, but the production hasn't been there. I mean, to say that his career to this point has been disappointing would be the same thing as saying, I mean, it's an understatement right up there with Chris being, uh, Chris is a mild disappointment with the ladies, okay? When you look into it a little bit deeper, there are a lot of people who try to lay the blame at the feet of the quarterback situation, which in Cleveland is might be you might consider fair. I mean, let's face it, Cleveland at quarterback has been just as bad, if not worse in some cases, as Buffalo has been over the last 20 years. I mean, that's just a fact. Having said that, It hasn't been like he didn't get opportunities. Coleman saw 73 targets in 2016 and 53 targets in 2017, but still finished with a catch percentage of just 45% and 39% respectively. That puts him, in terms of pass catching percentage, behind the following pass catchers on his own team with the same quarterbacks. Okay? This was going on at the same time during that span. Gary Barnage. Terrell Pryor. He's a quarterback. <laughs> David Njoku. Josh Gordon. Andrew Hawkins. Ricardo Lewis. Rashard Higgins. Seth DeValve. I never heard of half of these guys. Neither have I! I haven't heard of any of these people. (laughs) On that list, hilariously enough, only Njoku was a first-round draft pick. There's probably a lot of people out there who hear this and go, well, how can something like that happen? How? It doesn't seem fathomable that you would draft a wide receiver at number 15 overall and he would just be that bad at doing the thing 
that wide receivers are supposed to do, which is catch the football. He's also been injured. Well, that's okay. So first we start with injuries. I mean, he was compared. I mean, it's a multifaceted issue. He was compared to players like Percy Harvin, not in terms of his ability to run routes or get, but when he has the ball in his hands, he has the ability to make plays. He does. And he's, I think he's had flashes of that throughout his career. I mean, there was a game against Baltimore last year where he had, I think two touchdowns. There was another game against the Steelers this past year where he had a big game and then dropped the, what would have been the game winning pass in the end zone. And it, Kind of put the exclamation point on their 0-16 season. Coming out of college, I mean, Baylor University. What is Baylor? They are a, Mario, you know this as well as I do. They are a spread option offense through and through that doesn't really require their, it's not a pro-style offense, and it doesn't require their wide receivers to be more than one trick pony. Speed in that kind of a system will win, right? Absolutely. So I guess my question to you first and foremost when it comes to this trade, do you think that maybe he was a little too raw going into Cleveland? I mean, the, the, my take on this is that you need, I mean, the idea I think when he was drafted was that he was going to be eased into the system. He had, he would have Josh Gordon there. He would have players around him. That's a and heck of he, a role model. And then he, yeah, right. <laughs> and he could be eased into the offensive system while he learned how to play NFL wide receiver because he wasn't ready for that coming out of college. And instead, that didn't happen. He was looked at as being a number one to number two wide receiver, which was never really fair. I mean, all the accolades that got heaped on him in the pre-draft process, every single draft profile written, still carried the caveat of that he would be raw and he would require time. He didn't get that with the Browns. Is it fair to say that, that could derail the career of a guy like that? Well, it could. If you think about a guy that's, that's drafted in the first round, you're like, oh, he's a, you know immediately he's a first-round talent. But then when you see that the Browns drafted him in the first round, who drafted Johnny Manziel in the first round, and he threw three picks out of four passes the other night. So uh, it could be one of those things where the guy was, he, he wasn't, he either is not a first-round talent, or uh, the Cleveland Browns organization thought of it as, listen, we've had Gordon here, we've had Devon Bess here. Mm-hmm. These guys have had trouble in this organization. Let, let's get what we can for them. And let's see what let's see what happens. We've, we've dealt with Buffalo before. Let's see if Buffalo will take well, it. Well, and that's what it comes down to. I mean, you're you're essentially offloading a guy who's been often injured and who's had a lot of off a lot of problems. I mean, there's been talk about him not being committed to being a pro football player, him not putting in the time, obviously being injured and back. And his injury history, I think it's a little overblown. Hand injuries are a freak thing. Stephon Gilmore broke a hand, and it cost him half a season. Did that stop him from playing like a number one cornerback here in Buffalo? Not really. So when you talk about what a hand injury is, it's the type of injury, if you were to tell me it was an ankle or a groin or a knee or, I mean, people here in Buffalo saw what happened to Stevie Johnson. He had that first real serious groin injury. He was never the same player. Mm -hmm. He, He deteriorated from there. He became more fragile. Hand injuries, broken hands, those are freak things. They You're also talking about a wide receiver now. Well, too. that's and it's that lot, may that, also be different, and that may be impacting his ability to catch the football. Is this long-standing injury history combined with the fact that he never learned how to be a pro receiver? I think impacting him to catch the football was Kevin Hogan. <laughs> that's that's your I boy. I remember that's, loving that's that That's your guy. boy, Kevin Hogan. Uh, Cody Kessler lo- out of Stanford. I thought Kevin Hogan was the truth. 
That being said, I feel like this is a great deal for the Buffalo Bills, and I can't understand all of the nonsense and just outrage from some of these fans out there on social media who disagree. Guys, I get it that we survived a 17-year drought, but we as a fan base can't have killed that many brain cells that we would think acquiring a former first-round pick for the same compensation as we just spent on Austin Prowell in April is a bad idea. You just can't. You drunk? No. But this ought to do it. That's how I picture all of you out there. Anyone complaining about this trade, that's how I picture you. Just binge drinking and breaking bottles in public. Stop it. Put the booze down, get a cup of coffee, listen to what I'm about to say. Yeah, goose brava. When it comes to things like this, I usually try to... I feel like this is a great deal. I feel like we're bringing in something that our, our wide receiver core didn't have and desperately needed. I mean, you guys all read the reports coming out of training camp. There is nothing promising coming out of our wide receiver core right now. So for you to go and add a guy who, if nothing else, at least has speed, deep speed, I will take that. For a seventh, Chris, when I was doing the chicken wing challenge, the reaper wing challenge, you asked me a trivia question about who was the Bills' seventh round pick in this year, and my screamed response into the microphone was that it was a seventh round pick and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He was a seventh round pick. It doesn't matter what position he played. It doesn't matter whether he made it or not. He was a seventh round pick. The fact that we added a guy who has started games in the NFL and has experience at this point in the season for a seventh round pick. You're all lunatics if you don't think that that's a good idea. Hey, I like the trade. I'm, I'm looking forward to Josh Allen throwing him the ball. I can't, I can't the, wait. We finally have a guy fast yeah. enough to go catch. There, there's, the, there's the threat of another 17 years. I know that in a lot of Bills fans' minds. But the thing is, you usually weigh the value of the guy that you're getting versus what we had to give up. Thank you. You gave up a seventh-round pick. What is wrong with it? That's what I think most Bills fans said. What is wrong with this guy <laughs> that we got him for a seventh-round pick? Either A, he's not a first-round talent, or he is a first-round talent with Josh Gordon baggage, okay. and they couldn't have both of them in the same locker room. Well, and so he, but if he had value and had talent like that, a fourth? <laughs> well, exactly. A, you know what I mean? Like, There's a reason no one was touching him. It's so, terrifying. So here's... When it comes to things like this, I usually try to take my feelings, okay? I have my immediate knee-jerk fan reaction. And then I try to confirm them by finding the opposing team's fan pages and Twitter feeds. And I, and what I do is I, I, I climb Mount, the Mount Everest of fan outrage or fan reaction on the other side of the fence and try to see if that lines up with a parallel to how I feel. When we signed Russ Bodine, after since he let him walk, the fan base and analysts like uh, Joe Goodberry and a lot of other people over there from the Cincy universe, as far as podcasting and uh, blogging go, pretty much universally agreed that the team was better off without that guy, which served to fuel my concern. It took it and made it worse. A review of the Browns SB Nation page, Dogs by Nature, okay? and other various message boards that they utilize will illustrate for anybody who's willing to do the work that I did and go research that, that knowledgeable fans and writers there 
not only hate the compensation, but it's led to them questioning the GM as a whole. Now, this is, I mean, this isn't just random fans screaming into the void of the internet. I mean, deputy managing editor of DogsByNature.com, Michael Hogue, wrote an article which essentially calls into question John Dorsey's handling of the situation from his decision-making to the fact that he traded a guy who by all accounts was having his best camp to date in his career to the choice to trade him way before you had to. You could have showcased... To one of the points he made in his article, you could have showcased this guy in a preseason game or two like the Bills did with Sammy Watkins and Reggie Ragland last season. And then trade them just in an attempt to say, hey, look, we're going to give this guy 15 targets tonight to prove he can catch the ball. And then we're going to try to get a fifth-round pick from somebody. Instead, the conversation went something like this in my mind. Okay, I want everyone to close your eyes for a second, unless you're driving, and picture an office setting. Brandon Bean walks up to John Dorsey's desk and says, Hey, John. Hey, how's it going? So uh, I heard that you uh, you got this donut you bought yesterday. And uh, you bought it for $5. But you didn't need it. You're about to throw it away. I'll tell you what. I, I left my breakfast at home and I'm kind of hungry. I'll give you a dollar for it if you want. That's what this trade amounts to. They were about to throw this guy away anyway. And instead of leveraging his own, you know, John Dorsey could have said, hey, we're going to hold out until week two of the preseason. Because they were under no pressure to trade him. You could have given other guys on the roster snaps without trading him. And instead, you made the move without even really showing what the guy could do or whether he was healthy or whether he could catch the ball. You could have gotten more and you didn't. And Browns fans, those are all fair, fair criticisms, I think, to make of a GM who makes that move. How pissed would you be, Mario, if that was our GM? You're talking about a guy that gave up a third-round pick for Tyrod Taylor to the same gentleman. Yes! So you're the, either he has pictures of Dorsey, <laughs> lewd pictures of Dorsey, but if you want to talk about it from a technical, technical standpoint, a sixth or seventh-round pick is either a special teams guy or a guy you're taking a flyer on that you don't think you can get in free agency after the draft. The Bills are taking a flyer here with Corey Coleman because yeah. you don't know what is going to happen. Does he have speed? Yes. Does he have talent? Yes. But – that thing, maybe he wasn't gelling in practice. Maybe his locker room presence. You don't know a lot of those things that we are not privy to. But you think, eh, what I mean, we are seventh priv- round, we whatever. Are, we are privy to it. You watched it on HBO last night. I'm sure we'll get to see it again next week. Oh, Jarvis Landry? Yeah, Jarvis <laughs> Landry. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to that. But. To hell with that guy. Um, but no, I, I mean, and this is going to open up into a broader conversation for me about Brandon Bean. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Hearing the trade made me happy. And then when I was at work and I heard the compensation, I wanted to put on a trench coat, fist pump, and just casually stroll around the office like I was Judd Nelson. Okay? And that doesn't really have a lot to do with the player itself. I mean, the piece is nice. Coleman, for all of you out there who think this is a terrible idea, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, you're adding, a, you're adding speed at a position where we currently just don't have any. If he lives up to even a third of his true talent and makes this roster, he's still going to give us something that we didn't have before, and we spent nothing on it. Now, having said that, 
I want to take this conversation in a little bit different direction. Because like I said, this brings me to Brandon Bean. When I think about Brandon Bean as a GM, as far as franchises and their success over the last two decades, it's kind of funny we're trading with the Browns so often. One thing has fueled the, I guess you want to call it the misery of both franchises. Because we've both been long-suffering fan bases. It's horrific drafting. From 2009 to 2016, the Browns drafted 11 times in the first round, and none of those players are on the team. The Bills haven't been a ton better. And both teams were guilty of bad free agent acquisitions, expenditure of draft capital in search of trades, which is underscored by the fact that both franchises have employed 15 different GMs during the last 18 years and have two combined playoff appearances to show for it. I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's almost comical, the amount of failure that has to take place across the board for that situation to take even materialize. I mean, across the lake. The mistake across the lake. I mean, we've been just as bad. And we've watched Bill's regimes, regimes during that time. They were cheap, okay? We watched regimes that spent money recklessly and put us in cap jail for years to come that other GMs had to come and try to clean up. And some GMs that just sat on their hands and did nothing. I mean, you think about drafting. We had Avion Black, Tim Ehus, and Brandon Spoon are all, Brandon Spoon, your last name is Spoon. There was a jersey, a Bills jersey that exists out there today. Somebody bought it. Who's with the guy's name Spoon? His family on the back of it. That. If any of you listeners have a Spoon jersey, I will buy it off you for twenty five dollars and a used baseball mitt, just to <laughs> say that I own it. That's how bad this franchise has been. So to me, Brandon Bean has been like a breath of fresh air. No, he wasn't responsible for Buffalo having an extra second round pick. Okay, he wasn't. He utilized it, but he wasn't responsible. But the moves he's made since he got here, when measured against what we've witnessed just in the last two administrations, make what he's done feel like strokes of genius. You call him Mafia Don? <laughs> Mafia Don. Let me tell you something. I know how to make this deal. <laughs> <laughs> he does know how to make it. I wouldn't be shocked if he had filthy pictures of John Dorsey somewhere <laughs> in a safe. Nixon Whaley showed flashes of being competent GMs. I, don't get me wrong. If it came to linebackers, yeah. Well, look it. <laughs> Whaley killed teams in player-for-player player trades. He he landed us, uh, what was it? Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes. Kelvin Shepard. For Kelvin Shepard, a third-round pick who is on his, like, fifth team right now. Okay? Oh. And got McCoy for Kiko Alonso, who is one of the highest paid and yet most disappointing players on the Miami Dolphins roster. Those guys aren't even viewed as starters at this point in their career, much less rosterable in some cases. But he got solid players in return for it. We'll never fault him for that. And Nick's, Nick's is going to be known as the guy who went big game hunting and came home with Mario Williams. He went out there and he found a way to lure the biggest free agent, at, the biggest free agent on the market at the time, lure him to Buffalo. Hey, this Mario Williams is going to change this franchise. Didn't exactly play out that way. And a lot of that is probably Nix's fault. 
because his drafts were terrible. And he's the guy who thought it was a good idea to go into uh he thought it was a good idea to go into a season with Stevie Johnson as his number one receiver, who was a seventh round pick, and then two undrafted free agents next to him in the slot. And uh, I mean, it, it history's history. Ryan Fitzpatrick is your quarterback. Come on. Well, one of the one of the things I don't mean to cut you off here, but I just wanted to mention oh. it before you go on another epic rant. Um, you got to think about it this way: the, the previous history that the Bills and the Browns have. You know what I mean? The, the, of trading players and, and, and doing deals and like that. The other thing could be. There could have been pressure put on the Browns because rumor has it that Des Bryant might might be going there. Now, if you think about it this way, Josh Gordon, um, Jarvis Landry, they can go deep. Mm-hmm. So can Corey. Okay, what better? I don't. I don't you know, I use air quotes. Role model for a, a guy who's troubled, as in Josh Gordon, and a guy who can't shut his mouth, in Jarvis Landry, than an aging Des Bryant who needs a roster <laughs> spot. You know what I mean? He could tell those guys, listen, I've been down the road. You guys are traveling. You don't want to go down this road. And maybe they're trying to lure him. Maybe Bean said something like, hey, I talked to so-and-so. These guys are thinking about picking Dez up. You better get rid of somebody quick to open up a roster spot. I'm just spitballing here. I'm just trying to think. I understand. That's why they unloaded him in in the fashion that they did. I mean, that's but it's still, and so again, we're talking about bad GMs who make mistakes. John Dorsey hasn't done himself any favors to this point in his career. I mean, he's, you took Baker Mayfield, number one overall, when it, and then, and then, which, which, hey, that's arguable. You could argue that if you thought he was the guy and you thought he was the best of this class, then good for you, you got your guy. Then with a generational talent at, you know, generational talent available to you at pass rusher, could have given you bookend pass rushers for the next five years. You decided to draft a cornerback. Who has to be Patrick Peterson now? I mean, that was the first question we'll move in. It deteriorated. I mean, luckily it, it got us the quarterback we quote-unquote wanted with less compensation involved. But Dorsey hasn't done a bang-up job either. Meanwhile, I look at the work that Bean has done. I mean, he's shed large contracts and future guaranteed dollars for draft considerations, and still manage to get useful players back in return. Guys who contributed to our success last year. He shipped Tyrod Taylor and his bonus for a third-round pick. The, the, one of the highest third-round picks that were out there. The highest. I mean, First it's a, pick of the third round. It's a fleecing, in my opinion. Did he turn that into Edmonds, too? He turned that third-round pick into Edmonds? I have no idea. I'd, I'd have to do the research on that. I can't I, I'm too fired up. I, yeah, get Ski on the phone. That nerd can figure <laughs> that out immediately. And then he has the Bills fresh off a playoff appearance heading into 2019 with the second most available cap space. What I think is a little more impressive than that about Brandon Bean, which is underscored by that trade, is his ability to see our needs and make what I think are adequate and in my opinion, fantastic moves to address them. I'm sorry if I sound like a cheerleader here, but Jesus, I wish I had pom-poms. He trades up in the first for Tremaine Edmonds after already trading up in the first for a top 10 quarterback because he sees a linebacker core that is starved for an elite playmaker and figures, I'm not going to wait until next year to take a crack at one. I see a guy who shouldn't be where he is. Fine, I'll go get that guy because I want to make this team good now and it's not going to cost me as much as everybody thinks it's going to, not to because mention, I can make this trade. Not to mention he thought so highly of Edmonds, considering that he wasn't even brought in for a visit. No, exactly. 
He rebuilt the defensive tackle position, which was the source of some liver-destroying moments last season for me, without really putting us in cap jail. Mario, it's funny you're here. Do you remember the Saints game? Which you, one? The game Which you attended one? and tailgated with us. Oh, phenomenal. So I love being in that parking lot at halftime. When you met us after we left the game early, and you saw me in the parking lot as I was drinking beer and then throwing it at the tailgate of my truck. <laughs> I mean, what was you, what were your feelings on our defensive tackle situation at that point? Was this the star Latulale? Well, this is my point. Like, <laughs> we got crucified by the no, Saints. Yeah, I, yeah. We both sat there and watched it happen live and in person. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just it was like chewing glass. Mm. To see that he he went into this offseason and said, okay, I see a problem. Our linebackers can't keep clean to get to the running back. I'm going to go fix this. He saw our linebacker core and said, well, we need an elite athlete back there. Preston Brown's okay, but we're going to go get this guy. We already let him walk because I don't think he's good enough. I mean, he's just everything he sees that's wrong with the roster, he finds a way to go get it without really putting us in trouble or in a bind. Now, through the first week and a half of camp, everybody's been just bitching up a storm about our wide receivers. How there's a bit behind Curly and behind Kelvin Benjamin, there isn't anybody who's really stepping up as the third wide receiver or fourth wide receiver or fifth wide receiver. It's like nobody wants the job. So what did he do when he took a look at the roster and said, oh shit, we're about to go into an NFL season and I have no idea who's going to catch these passes regardless of who our quarterback is. He goes back to the he goes back to work and does what a good GM does and tries to find a deal. He went back to the well with Cleveland, which is yeah. apparently much deeper than everyone thought it was. Yeah. The seventh round pick we gave up for Coleman this week. In Doug Whaley's final season, in the middle of training camp, he traded away a seventh round draft pick to the Green Bay Packers. That pick was spent on a player named Laurenti McCray, who played outside linebacker. At the time, he was brought in to be a player that they thought could bolster the pass rush. He was going to come in here and he was going to help out being a pass rusher, and we need another good body at outside linebacker. McCray went on to play 15% of all defensive snaps that season. He was in every game, 15% of all snaps, and just half, 54% of all special team snaps, and had no sacks. Through that lens, the trade of the same capital that we got some scrub that nobody knows the name of. I'm sure when I said Laurenti McCray, people go, who? What are you talking about, Drew? Through that lens, the trade of the same capital, maybe even less, because it's not until 2020, it's not even like it's next year, for a guy who, if he's healthy, would easily slot into the top four, just on raw talent alone, into this wide receiver core. Is that or is that not a steal? I want to throw this beer and walk around the kitchen, Mario, like Maximus and Gladiator. Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Can I ask you a question, being an Alabama fan? What's that, sir? Julio Jones. (laughs) Since Julio Jones, and you can't name Ridley either. Okay. Since Julio Jones, can you name, because I can't, I'm actually asking because I'm drawing a blank right now, name a top flight wide receiver in the NFL currently if that came out of Alabama. I got nothing. Primarily a run first offense 
Yes. Brian Dable came from there. And I watched his... How much pressure... Because Zay Jones and, and Ridley had ex- exact same combine numbers. So you're going to think he's probably going to fill that role realistically. Mm-hmm. Even though in camp he's having some trouble with it, that's fine. Realistically, how much are they going to throw the ball? Here's the thing I like to point to when it comes to the Dable point. Okay. Brian Dable went into every single game from October on last year in the Alabama season with two game plans drawn up for every single game because he had been calling for them to start Tua Tagaviola, the backup quarterback, every single week. That was going to be a more pass-heavy offense because he trusted the arm of that quarterback more than current quarterback Jalen Hurts. But Jalen Hurts, just coming off an appearance in the national title game, Nick Saban sticks with guys who have experience. If you're an underclassman, you rarely get to crack an Alabama roster. It just doesn't happen. So the fact that you have this freshman quarterback who took you to a title, you're not going to overlook that. The kid has some talent. He was the SEC Offensive Player of the Year the previous year. All year long, Saban fought Dable over the idea that Tagaviola should be starting. But every single week, Dable would ask for it, and he would drop two separate game plans. The national title game shows up. They're running the same kind of run option offense that they've been running all season, and it's not working. You're losing 13 to nothing at halftime. They came out and they said, we're putting the kid in. You're getting to roll your tag of viola offense. Good luck. That kid put on a show in the second half of that game with throws down the field, throws up the seam, play action, play fake, run pass option, which is the new thing. It's big, it's in vogue, it's sexy in the NFL. I'm not worried about Brian Dable being able to craft an offense that can showcase the talents on this team. I'm more worried about us being able to put an appropriate amount of talent out there that lets him utilize it to its fullest extent. And with this trade, we made that possible because we didn't have anybody who could take the lid off a defense and run, even if it's just a fly route, even if it's just a deep fly, just to take one of the safeties out of the box and away from the play. You can, if you can carry two defenders with one guy, you're already at an advantage. That's what we just got this week. Even if he can't catch the ball, you have to account for his speed. That's why I want everybody out there who's freaking out about this. I saw on the Bills Wire, I hate to drop names and I hate to say things about other outlets, other publications, because I'm not here to disparage anybody. They called the trade desperate. I call them desperate for clicks. That's what they are, okay? You thirsty sons of bitches. Find something real to write about and stop making clickbait. I hate it. So in your mind, this helped McCoy and Ivory. Absolutely. This, this move. Absolutely it does. Because you finally have a speed option that you can send down the field. And even, even if he's a decoy, he's removing players from the box. I'm just thinking about this from a pure X's and O's standpoint right now. It's a good trade. And I'm in love with the fact that Brandon Bean has done probably the best job in this short period of time that I've seen, I mean, these are moves that I, maybe it's because we, over 17 years of bad GMs, and bad front offices, we've just gotten used to dealing with crap. And now I've got a guy who maybe he's not a genius. Maybe he's just also not crap, but he might as well walk on water in my opinion. <laughs> Chris, Chris, what are your thoughts in closing? Well, I would just think that if, if Corey Coleman's going to just run down the field, I might 
think that that would open things up underneath for people like Zay Jones? Thank you. Good route runners. Everyone says he's raw. Okay, well, we don't need you to be anything. Out of the gate, we don't need you to be number one this or number in. two or number four. You could be number five. You could be in on specific packages that only call for you to run that deep fly. But ultimately, he's he could be a vital part of our offense in 2018, and we got him for a seventh-round pick. Ah, yeah, I love it. Moving on to training camp, because every week we feel like we got to talk about this. Training camp week two, highlights, lowlights, and stuff we feel like BSing about. Starts off with Zay Jones. Zay Jones made his return to practice. Now, he's wearing the red non-contact jersey. I don't know how long it's going to take him to get into team drills. I think that almost guarantees we will not see him tomorrow night during the game. For a wide receiver who struggled the way he did last year, it's, it's not hard to see why the team would be as frustrated over his absence, especially given the reason, as they are. I mean, do you, Mario, you, if you were a head coach, would you reserve the right to be a little bit miffed about the fact that you, tr- you drafted a second-round wide receiver, didn't have the greatest year, you need him to get in camp, you need him to get familiar with a brand-new offensive system, and he's just not able to go? I mean, as far as the development goes in camp, yeah, you need that. You need those reps. You need the chemistry to start building, especially if you have young quarterbacks and or a new quarterback at the, on the roster. However, and and then you know, like I like I made the comparison earlier with um, with Ridley. I mean, he's Dable will know how to use Jones, and I think the big thing about Coleman, why it's more frustrating, is that now that you have Coleman, you can put Zay in the slot, and mm-hmm. that's where he belongs. And the fact that he's not getting reps out there, of course, is frustrating. But you're not gonna. You're not gonna you're not gonna hammer the guy for that. You just you just want to get him on the field. That's why he's wearing the red jersey. Listen, I want you on the field. I want you to work back slowly, and then, you know, when the time's right, Dale's gonna put you in there, and you do what you got to do. I mean, I, I hope that this all goes well because when you look at what we're dealing with the wide receiver position, Andre Holmes has never caught fifty percent or more of the passes thrown his way in a single season. He just hasn't. That's his career stat line so far. Quan Bray. With the, with, he was here in spring practices. He was, now he's released to make room for Coleman. Robert Foster, he was the darling. He was the media darling coming out of spring practices. He has sucked ever since pads went on. He's You're, just fallen off a map. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You're telling me a guy that was in this exact same offense six months ago fired out of the gates the first week? No. <laughs> okay. No. All right. So maybe there's some merit to that. He, without pads in contact, it's probably really easy. He knew to play. this offense. He knows this offense. All right, that's true because he did play at Alabama. So I, I'll give you that. You know what? Cheers, Mario. I'll drink to that. So having said that, you look at the chart. Ray Ray McLeod hasn't done much except for juke one guy out of a out of his shoes once, and he caught a touchdown pass from Josh Allen last week, and then Austin Prowell. Your seventh-round draft pick, who screwed up so badly during one of his reps this past week, Brian Dable stopped practice altogether just to chew his ass out in the middle of the field. The kid, ever since then, has averaged two targets per practice. I mean, this is... We have nothing. It's a barren wasteland. Hopefully, Zay's return to the offense helps our passing because things have been difficult, to say the least. You look at the quarterback competition right now in training camp. It's disappointing 
it's disappointing to even have to talk about this at this point. We've hit a plateau, and it's not good. Last week, we indicated that Joe Biscelli and a couple other local writers had indicated that pressure was starting to become a problem. That trend hasn't changed to this point because the sacks just continue to pile up. <sighs> Over the last three days, okay, things have been really bad to a point where you've still got McCarron who's holding onto the ball too long. That's been one of the storylines behind him all, all training camp is that he, he reads the fields. You can see him going through his reads. He just doesn't get rid of the ball fast enough. That's a problem if he's going to be your starting quarterback. He also doesn't complete passes. He's had a handful of practices recently where he's not com- he's accurate, but he's not completing anything outside of eight yards from the line of scrimmage. I'm sorry, we've all seen Ryan Fitzpatrick here. I don't need another I don't need another walk down memory lane here. Peterman is throwing the ball downfield, but he's also committing egregious interceptions that every one of them get described as wholly unavoidable, wholly avoidable. He could have avoided that pick if he had just, or oh, that pick wasn't necessary. Peterman forced the ball into where he shouldn't have. Great. And then you've got Josh Allen, who generally fails to reach 50% on his completions per practice. Our quarterback battle is not panning out the way we thought it would. I'm just saying, you have in any system, in any uh, in, in any you know team that you're going to have, the defense will always come along faster. I mean, the defense has one job to make the offense look stupid, and that's what they're doing in practice right now. You could think of it as a catch-22 in the fact that your defense—they're doing really good. There's a lot. There's talent on this offense. There is talent on this offense, and they're just outplaying them in practice. The other thing is, you have to realize, Drew, is this team will not throw more than 25 times a game. What is this? If they complete, if they complete seventeen passes, you're talking about sixty-eight percent completion percentage, which is phenomenal in the NFL. Seventeen, twenty-five passes. No, who do you think those are going to be distributed to? There's going to be a lot of Lashawn McCoy, a lot of Charles Clay. There's five to eight to McCoy, Charles Clay, Calvin Benjamin. Okay, all right. So I get it. I, I guess I see your point. And so maybe I can take a step back from the ledge. Because I honestly wanted... I'd be on I'm the ledge. I'm looking at the chart right now and my liver If hurts. I didn't break that down, I would, I would be on the ledge too. My liver preemptively hurts watching what's happening <laughs> statistics-wise coming out of training camp. Yes. I know that there's a lot of pundits out there who are putting a positive spin on this. And I think a lot of it's for the fans' benefit. I'm coming into this full admission here as a glass-half-full kind of guy. I am. Mm-hmm. I, I have no faith in any of these guys until they give me a reason to have it. Beer's half full. <laughs> the beer is half full. And it's about to get a lot emptier <laughs> if things go the way I think it's going to go. There have been some positive moments. I'm not going to gloss over that. Mm-hmm. There have been some really nice touchdown throws by both by bo- both Peterman and Allen. McCarron, not so much. McCarron seems very much the mold of a game manager, and that's what he's falling into, which may be what they're looking for. Tomorrow night, I expect to see both quarterbacks get a significant amount of playing time, which should help. McCarron should be the starter, okay? And those two young guys, who I think have the most upside, should get the most snaps so that the coaches can evaluate what it is they're capable of being. I mean, anybody who remembers the quarterback battle, ugh, you know what, I'm, I'm going I'm to wait to get into that because I haven't had enough beers. One of the other headlines coming out of training camp... <laughs> 
unheralded names are getting a look. One of the coolest parts of training camp as a fan is you get to watch the roster take shape. And sometimes it doesn't happen in ways that, you know, when you look at, okay, here's our, here's our 90-man roster. Okay, I'm going to pick you out what I think are the top 53. It's interesting to watch the churn that takes place with the other, what is it, 37 picks? Because those guys are all fighting for roles. These, you know, these 53 guys that you go in saying, I know these are the most talented guys. Some of those guys, these other 37, just haven't gotten a look. This week it was interesting to see a couple of them get shots at significant playing time because of injury, because of veteran rest day. The two I want to talk about, tight end Jason Kroom. Kroom is essentially a wide receiver who's been converted to tight end. I mean, he hasn't really been given a whole lot of responsibility because he ended last season with an injury settlement in the middle of training camp. But with injuries to O'Leary and Logan Thomas, it's Kroom who's flashing the most out of all the backups behind Charles Clay. Now, this is a guy, Rob Quinn, if you're listening, Rob Quinn of CoverOne.com. I remember having an argument with you over this player, a drunken whiskey-fueled art Twitter feud, which is stupid in its own right. And I ended it with the gif from Goodfellas. I told you to go get your shine box. I want to apologize because I've gotten a chance to watch some of the kids' snaps, and he, he's, he's a pass-catching tight end. That's all he'll ever be. He's undersized. He's not going to block. But in terms of playmaking ability, if Nick O'Leary and Logan Thomas miss any significant time, out of our options left on hand, it's nice to see that there's a guy who can go out there and step up with the second team and make some flash plays. That's who'd, what it's about. Who would you get in an argument with this? Rob Quinn right. <laughs> from formerly of the Bills Wire, now of CoverOne.com. CoverOne.net. .net. And then running back Marcus Murphy. Is this RoboCop? No, that's well, I've moved on to Trent Murphy because he's an actual member of the team, and this guy's on the fence, but Jesus. With McCoy getting veteran rest days, Chris Ivory is the de facto number one running back. He's going to run with the first team. And that makes sense because with his skill set and his experience, he's a roster lock. I mean, that's he's the most reliable option at running back. They went back. out and got him. They that's, went out and got him mm-hmm. for a purpose. Yeah. The real battle, in my opinion, is going to be between Marcus Murphy, who a lot of you might remember for his one big pass catch and run in that Miami game last season, and undrafted free agent Keith Ford, and two holdovers from last season, Taiwan Jones and Travaris Cadet. Love Cadet. For all the you you would love Cadet, you old man. For all the praise being heaped on Ford by the media, I. Murphy, athletically, is heads above him and is getting more snaps on the depth. He's moving up the depth chart. He's getting more snaps. He's being moved around in different positions because athletically, he's a completely different animal. He can pick up a blitz. That's the big thing about running backs in the NFL. Keith Ford can pick up a blitz. That's what I'm saying. You know what Marcus Murphy can do? He can play slot. He can catch out of the backfield. He can run between the tackles. He He can play special teams. He can return kicks. Okay. Oh, my God. Breathe. You said cadet. Goose Fraba. I look at Okay, so. Goose Fraba. I look at Marcus Murphy as a running back three on this roster. When I look at all of the running backs here. Jones and Cadet are both here as veteran options. 
I feel like last offseason, does anybody remember Taiwan Jones? He could have caught a pass from Nathan Peterman and walked it into the end zone that would have won the game, and he dropped it. And he dropped it. Hit him in the hands, and he dropped it. He's proven time and time and time again that he can't be trusted to be consistent regardless of what the job you give him is. And Cadet, Mario, to me, Cadet is a 50-year-old man eating plain vanilla yogurt, wearing bifocal glasses and khakis with a tan polo tucked in at the waist with no belt. Don't tell me your fantasies. (laughs) Nothing exciting whatsoever. One of the blandest things on the face of the earth. In the uh, okay, so it's you need to calm down. Fine, your your tries are jiggling as you (laughs) wave your arms. It's Oikos, okay? Plain yogurt. It'll still get the job done for you. No, my my point is this: in the unlikely event of Lashawn McCoy missing any time, Murphy or Cadet is your running back too. Who would you trust? Murphy. You. I would. Bank on the if I've lost LaShawn McCoy, that's a that's a loaded question because if I've lost LaShawn McCoy, I have no hope for this season. So I would rather I'm, see I'm, you employ not the whole season. As, no, no, I'm just saying in the unlikely event of things happening, you know how the NFL does their a thing. more athletic player get a shot than go with a guy who run who when he's running looks like he's moving as quickly as Chris would be running. And at the same time, Dude, I got doesn't break tackles. About? He's wired. Sort of catches out of the backfield, but really doesn't do anything. If you're just another guy, then I'd rather bank on the upside of a young guy who has some explosiveness to his game versus the same old running back who can r- get behind a line and run forward for three yards in a cloud of dust. What does Dayball's offense do now? I hate you. Yeah, you run. Put the knife down. Stop bringing things back. Oh, stop trying to bring me back to a point of reason. <laughs> this is not ma- happening tonight. It doesn't matter because tomorrow it's all going to be answered. Yes. We're going to get to see live-action Buffalo Bills football for the first time in I don't even know how many months, but God, it's here. Since January. Oh, it's incredible. I couldn't drink last time I could say that. <laughs> last time I watched a Bills game was January. Oh playoffs. Playoffs? <laughs> That's right. Playoffs? Talking about playoffs. Guys, preseason preview, live football is here. I'm not, I'm not going stu- to pay attention to what's going on with the Carolina Panthers and try to give you guys a preview of what's going on there because it's preseason. It's all vanilla, it's it's all vanilla play calling. So instead, what I want to do is I want to give you guys an overview of what it is I watch for on a, or at least what I'm going to be watching for, not just this week, but every single week as the preseason progresses. There's a handful of storylines that I'm most infatuated with, and I'm going to explain to you why I think that these might be the most important. Well, we, we, all, we all know that I will be, because I have a screwed up uh, foot. I should probably tweet a picture of my foot out. But, don't, don't do that. But because I, I technically I'm supposed to have a hockey game tomorrow night, I'll be over at your place getting to do my one of my favorite pastimes watching you watch football <laughs> while I videotape it. Is this an event? Am I, am it, yeah. Mario, you're you, more than invited to come over to the, ma- the Fortress tell- of Solitude. I don't know watch. if I'd be wa- more inclined to watch you or the game. Uh, trust me. You are going to want to so. watch Drew watch football. <laughs> it is amazing. <laughs> I would tell any, anybody that listens to the show, you are missing out watching Drew watch football. It is, My it, wife would bet It is different. incredible. Because you guys all get to laugh about it and go home. My wife is stuck with me. Well, God bless that woman. If memory serves me correctly, you always wind up in a camouflage silk banana hammock by the end of the night. Something happens. I usually end up off the rails somewhere. 
So now, talking about what I'm going to be looking for tomorrow night, before I inevitably lose my mind. It's going to happen probably somewhere in the fourth quarter when Josh Allen comes in and starts throwing passes. First and foremost, linebacker and defensive back play. Our linebacking core was not a glaring weakness of last season. The 2017 Buffalo Bills were not hurting for talent at linebacker, but it wasn't a dynamic unit. And some of their struggles might, I think, be attributed to the defensive line. With the upgrades we've now made to the defensive line, I want to see what these linebackers are capable of. I mean, my hope is that they prove our suspicion that they can be playmakers like Matt Milano. Matt Milano might be able to accomplish a lot more if he's kept clean on a more consistent basis. Just flow freely to the ball, keep blockers off them. I'd like to see what these guys can do. And I am also itching to get a look it's just a taste of that freakish athleticism out of Tremaine Edmonds. He is the saving grace of the first round of this draft for me. In terms of defensive back, last week I brought up exactly how little real NFL experience our depth options at cornerback have right now. It's one NFL start, no statistics. Between all of the depth players that currently exist on our roster, that's a problem considering how often teams are forced to go to your Fifth cornerback, sometimes your sixth cornerback because of injury, because of fatigue, because of whatever, ineffectiveness. It's going to be interesting to see how these guys fare when the lights are on and they're out there playing real contact football. My hope is that some of these guys, like Trey Elston, picture that guy last season. He came in in the preseason. He flew around the field. He made a lot of tackles. He didn't make the roster initially, but then by the time we played the Raiders, he was our starting safety. And I remember they left him multiple times, single high, alone. It's like, all right, you must have impressed the coaching staff somehow. I want to see if our cornerback depth can do that this time around. Is there a guy or two guys, a Breon Borders or I don't know, who else is out there at cornerback, who can step up? And just make it known like, hey, you can rely on me to make some plays if I have to. Because these are our guys. Yeah. Without the, If the pro scouting department doesn't get involved and make any new acquisitions, the guys we see tomorrow night playing into the second, third, and fourth quarter, those are going to be the guys behind Vontae and Trey. I mean, that's, that's a terrifying prospect. And I'm going to be watching like it's a horror movie with fingers over my eyes, except when I have to drink beer. <laughs> because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared of what we are at that position. Watching guys make plays in the third and fourth quarter of a preseason game remind me of Major League Two. When, when <laughs> One of my favorites. When Rube turned to the coach, he goes, wow, really, Willie really got some power this year. He goes, <laughs> off a guy that'll be bagging groceries in a week. That's like hilarious. seriously, that's what, that's what I, the third and fourth quarter are to me. The first and second quarter remind me of a Pro Bowl game. Seriously. You're trying to get things done, but it's supremely vanilla. You're not going to do anything extravagant. You're going to try to say, can they get their block? Can they get their reads? Can they do this? Okay, let's see. Let's progress from there. In those third and fourth quarters, that's when guys are fighting for jobs. Oh, yeah. That's why I love the second half. I don't give a damn what happens in the first half. That second half is where these guys are going to make, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm excited and also terrified to see what our defensive backs are bringing to the table. Because we want to hope that there's something out there. 
Hopefully that comes to fruition. Oh, God. <laughs> Another thing I'm going to be watching is Shaq Lawson. He's been referred to as this year's Reggie Ragland, and I can see why. He's fallen behind on the depth chart, and he doesn't look or sound like a player who's making enough of an impact at all, really, in any facet of the game, given the fact that he wasn't drafted by this staff. Now, everyone seems to be on the fence. Whenever they ask McDermott, big deal. where is he? You just hear, well, he's trying. But he's on the depth chart firmly behind Trent Murphy, and they've made no bones about the fact that Trent Murphy's the starter. So then the question becomes, what role does Shaq really have? Because normally when you, when you have a backup defensive lineman, think back to last year, Ryan Davis. Ryan Davis came in for this team, and he still managed to get a sack, and he had some pressures, and he did some good things. And he ultimately wasn't good enough to stay on this team. But Shaq Lawson's here, and the book on him is that he's still three years into his NFL career has not learned pass rush moves. Too often, he goes to his bull rush, which, for a big guy, you want to rely on your power. I get that. But as a defensive lineman in the NFL, you have to learn how to hand fight. You have to, or else you'll, an offensive lineman will anchor into your body, they'll shove you to the outside of the formation, and you will never get near the quarterback. And that's been Shaq Lawson's problem. It doesn't sound like that's changed. So given that, I want to see what he brings to the table in this game, and I want to see how many snaps they give him. Because he very well could just be being showcased in this game. If he's playing the whole second and into the third, that tells me they don't view him as a backup. They're trying to get someone in the NFL to notice this guy so that maybe they can Corey Coleman him the hell out of here and pick up their own seventh-round draft pick. <laughs> Well, it's one of those things where he's a guy that, that, like you said, he wasn't drafted by this regime. And he's another guy, too, wasn't drafted into this style of defense. You know I mean, he, he was playing primarily in a 3-4 most of the time. He's a guy that needs to have his hand in the dirt all the time. And a lot of times he didn't, you know, in, in the complex schemes that were prior to McDermott and Bean. You know what, though? It's funny, too. I, I would go out on a limb and say that Hughes has more of a possibility of not being here than Lawson even though both of them have, have equally chances of being gone. Seagram's back. There's no way. I if you feel you. that way, put a yeah. Seagram's back. I owe you 15 of them. I know you do. Okay. Uh, uh, uh. What do you, I mean, I didn't bet you when you made the Murphy comment. Folks, we, do, folks, we take our Seagram's bets here very seriously. They are very serious here. I'll, I'll have someone outside of my, my house at 8 in the morning when I get the paper. Here, here drink this. Drink this. Uh, okay, I haven't got diabetes today. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, but it, it, just for just for you know, not not the exact same reasons, but for reasons you could see both of these DNs getting dealt, and it would not surprise me one bit. Even though they could be both of these guys could be cornerstones of this defense. That's a hot take. I'll tell you this: I think Jerry Hughes stays. I think Shaq Lawson gets showcased. By which game? Let's do that. I'll do that. By which game? I think after this one. After this one, he's because gone. Because I think what's going to happen is after this game. Brandon Bean's going to go back to the well. Is it because he's they just signed a DE? He's going to pick up the phone and he's going to say, hey, John. Hey, John, Dorsey. Yeah. Hey, it's Bean. Hey, I got this guy. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And then to, go, to stick with the theme of DNs. He'll call, Mark, he'll call Mark Davis before to, that. To stick with the theme of DNs. Sorry, I had to burp. <laughs> Defensive pressure. The Bills were 29th in sacks last year. 
that's a problem. I mean, our our pass defense was fantastic, yet we were 29th in sacks, which tells you how good they could be. Borderline elite if they had any kind of pressure coming from the front four. I know it's going to be vanilla defensive concepts and offensive concepts. I just want to see if one-on-one, two-on-two-on-one. Can our guys win up front? What do our depth options look like? Do we have any pass rush coming from guys who are secondary on the roster? Like, you think about Russell Shepard, or excuse me, Russell Shepard, Jesus, the wide receiver. Ryan Russell, third-year prospect in the NFL. He played for Tampa Bay last year. He played in a lot of games and had a couple sacks. Third-year prospect, Eddie Yarbrough, okay? He got a lot of pressure, never got home, but he pushed the pocket last year. And by all accounts, Matt Boson, this uh, just rookie who's standing out and catching eyes at training camp. Can any of these guys in a vanilla just, hey, you and me, let's lower our heads and see who wins kind of situation against the offensive line? Can we generate some pressure? Because if we can, it's going to take a huge load off our secondary, which is going to free them up to make plays. Absolutely. No question about it. I so think that's, can. The, the, those are Anybody the places can. on the defensive side of the ball where my eyes are going to be. Wait a minute, though, Drew. You said that this defense was borderline elite last year. Why are you getting against so mad? the pass. Why are you getting so mad that our offense can't throw in practice against them then? <sighs> Stop using my own takes <laughs> against me. Stop using my own opinions against me. What? Chris, why did we invite him here? <laughs> you didn't. I crashed. <laughs> yeah. I love it, Mario. Yeah. <laughs> on the offensive side of the ball, Offensive line play. Out of everything that's changed in our roster since last season, you could argue offensive line has probably been the most dramatic. You lost a center. You lost a Pro Bowl left guard. And you've got a right guard position that was never that good to begin with. If you... <laughs> I think it's going to start... Traded your left tackle. And you traded your left tackle. It's you've gonna, got a, a, It's going to start with Bodine. Because he every all uh, accounts say that he sucked in Cincinnati... And they're glad that he's gone. That's what, that's what I'm going to be watching. Is this guy any good? Because all I hear is that he sucks. What I'll be watching is just to see, not only the starters, because the starting play is going to be huge. That first couple, you know, the first two or three drives, whatever they deem to give the starting offense, you're going to get to see whether or not that interior line is ready because the Panthers are no slouches in the middle. The, <laughs> there are no slouches. You're going to get to see what this team is made out of. And then one of the interesting wrinkles to what's been going on in training camp, when it comes to the backups, McDermott and company have pretty much been cross-training all of their backup offensive linemen. If you're not one of the five or six, if you want to count Groy and Bodine as uh, kind of swings, guard, slash center players, outside of those six, They've been taking the rest of the offensive linemen on the roster and making them play every position just to see who can do what. I think that's incredibly intelligent because what you're doing is you're trying to find out, hey, do I have a guy who can fill two needs? McBean, together as a unit. That's right, McBean. Love versatility. Remember running back Jonathan Williams who was here last season and then all of a sudden he wasn't? That happened because he had no special teams value. They have no use for a running back who can't also play special teams if needed. They love multifaceted players. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch the backup offensive linemen to see where they line people up and over the course of the preseason how that changes. Because they're looking for reserves. 
And they want to see who can do multiple things well. If you're a guy who can play center and guard, well, guess what? You're probably making the roster. If you're a guy who can play guard and then kick out to right tackle if you need to, in a pinch, you have more value than a guy who can only do one thing. I think it's an interesting wrinkle based on what I've seen and heard in training camp to, to watch it unfold in these preseason games. And then the, the gorilla in the room, the 500-pound gorilla. Drew Gear. <laughs> the quarterback situation. That's just what I'm going to call it. There's two things I'm looking for, and I don't, I don't give a damn about scores. I don't give a damn about what the stat sheet says. This is, these are the two facets of the quarterback competition I'm looking for. Snap percentage, decision-making. It's preseason football. OCs around the NFL take their playbook and avoid giving away information like women avoid giving Chris their phone number. Or they just give them fakes and get out of their Uber. <laughs> I didn't ask for her number. She asked for mine. <laughs> and defensive coordinators are on the same page. They want no part in risking their defensive starters or risking exposing some of the more creative looks that they're going to throw at defenses in the preseason. They're just not going to do it. They're going to line up in a lot of base defense, maybe some nickel. I doubt you'll see any really exotic looks. And they're going to try to preview the guys that will inevitably make up the other 10 to 15 guys on each side of the ball, offense and defense, that they're going to have to rely on on Sundays. That's what everybody does. So any kind of quarterback analysis, guys, Friday morning, I promise you, Twitter is going to be full of hot takes. I'm glad that don't I... Don't stare into it. It's going to be like the sun. It's going to hurt your eyes. See, I'm glad that I don't work on Fridays because usually Fridays I, I tend to stay away from social media, sports talk, radio, because we all, we all know that if it's going to happen, Josh Allen's playing against threes and he has a great stat line. WGR's phones are going off the hook Friday morning. You've got to put this guy with the ones. See how he did, how well he did against these people that aren't going to be on an NFL team? It's like he's playing against his own Wyoming teammates. I mean, I want to remind people. Well, you take that both sides. You say both sides. If, if Allen's in there and then he's playing against the ones against Carolina, let's just say for, for a sec, he throws two picks. Don't lose your mind. If he, sits, if he drops back, looks off Keekly and throws a slant behind him, don't lose your mind. Exactly. The good or the bad. Take for let the let the kid progress. Let's see what he was doing well. Let's see what he needs to work on, and see if by the second preseason game he does both those things. Whether he's playing against the ones, the threes, and also obviously the talent level. He's used to playing against threes and with threes since he went to Wyoming. Folks may not know this, but, but Mario knows what he's talking about. He played quarterback. He was a starting quarterback for Buff State University. <laughs> yeah. Shortly. Go Bengals. <laughs> <laughs> But was that a shot or a compliment? <laughs> I don't even know, honestly. What it I was, can't tell. What it was was you tried jiggling again. Listen, when you're 350 pounds, you get a little arm fat. So that's so. Gross. Now that I'm no longer 350, my arms still have fat. God. So it's like a kangaroo pouch. Yes. At the same time, I'll outlift both of you right now. Let's go. Even though you're six eight, Mario, I'll see you in hell. <laughs> Having said that, that's my point. Decision-making. I want to see how, regardless of who they're going up against, I don't care whether they succeed or not, are the throws that they're making good choices? I mean, look, 
the tale of the tape on each of these guys is pretty straightforward. And yet it isn't. I mean, you, you, you think that the concepts that I'm talking about, about how to take quarterback evaluation into, hey, let's, let's all just goose for a ball. Let's take a deep breath, take it all with a grain of salt because it is preseason. Look at Nathan Peterman. Last year, he was the, he was the darling in the minds of fans because he led a couple strong drives in the preseason. He got his first action, okay? First action against starters in the NFL and had one of the worst games in NFL history. He should have never been in there. But this is my point. That's why, I mean, let's look back to the last time we had a quarterback competition. The last, last time, season? No, no. The last time there was a legitimate quarterback battle. The season before last. Matt Castle started week one of the preseason while EJ and Tyrod duked it out behind him for snaps. But by week three, Tyrod had the lion's share of the snaps and the rest is history. That's it. That's why I'm saying do not get carried away with who starts. Don't get carried away with the stat line. Watch the game and then see what you see. Because here's what I'm looking at. This is the book that I have so far through training camp on each quarterback. AJ McCarron. Most experience out of the three quarterbacks, average arm talent and accuracy. So far through camp, he's held the ball too long. He struggles to throw with anticipation. I mean, he almost got two wide receivers killed. Kalen Clay has a rib injury because McCarron threw him into a hit from a safety during a scrimmage. What's going to happen when you're playing a team who actually wants to hurt his own players or the, the player that he sees coming at him? Penalty and a fine. I just, with his, I wouldn't be surprised to see him name the starter. But when you take his limitations and the fact that raw rookie and second year player, the fact that he hasn't outrightly just stood out as, hey, I'm the best quarterback, speaks volumes to where McCarron is as a quarterback right now. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you could, you could, tell, you could tell too that McDermott and Bean are playing with house money. You've made the playoffs. You've already made the playoffs. But I mean, if you believe them, they're not resting on their laurels. Yeah, but they want to protect Josh Allen. That investment, the highest quarterback ever taken in Buffalo Bills history, they're going to protect their investment. Yeah, because you don't you don't want another EJ Manuel, Kevin Cobb situation where Peterman and McCarron are walking out for training camp, holding hands, they slip on a mat, bump heads, and they're out for an extended period of time. And we got to look at Josh Allen and his career is ruined for starting way too early. This is how I know that you haven't. I love the fact that you haven't seen the movie Goodfellas, A Bronx Tale, but you come up with a scenario that sounds like something straight out of Tommy Boy. I hate you. You look at Nathan Peterman. Okay, now Nathan Peterman, for, he threw five interceptions in a game. Okay, that happened. But just because you did that doesn't mean you can't be an NFL quarterback. People talk about that game as if they forget that Tony Romo came here into, into Orchard Park. And threw five picks. Three of them went for touchdowns. That happened. He threw three pick sixes. Tony Romo did that. <laughs> it can happen to anyone. And I'm going to scream in the face of anybody who tells me that that one game means Peterman can't be an NFL quarterback. To this point in camp, Peterman has been one of the more up and down players. He has great days. He has bad days. It's almost, but, but the thing that concerns me is it's like it was when he was a rookie. 
He still had up and down days. He hasn't leveled out the good and the bad. That's concerning for his development as far as I'm concerned. By all accounts, his throwing power is much improved, which I'm, I can't wait to see. But it's not elite, and his accuracy and decision-making are still works in progress. That's what I want to see out of Nathan Peterman tomorrow night. I want to see, are you throwing the ball with zip, and can you do it with some accuracy that you didn't show last year? Because last year you left some throws out there. Has your decision-making gotten better? Because now that you've been picked off five times in one day, maybe you've learned how quickly windows close. Let's see if he's learned from it. And then there's Josh Allen. Everybody's favorite rocket-armed golden boy. He's one of the most divisive, I think, prospects on that we've had on this team in a while. He's going to be going, I want to preface this whole thing with, he's going to be playing against third-string players. So don't freak out when he throws two touchdowns. At the same time, he's a raw quarterback coming into the NFL with a cannon for an arm. Don't freak out when he overthrows his wide receiver directly to a safety who picks him off. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. I'm really not. And I suggest that none none of you out there do either. Ultimately, like I said, watch how many snaps they get, who gets the lion's share every single game, who makes the best decisions. That's really all you can take away from this. I mean, the kid has a cannon for an arm. He's also raw. Mario, you've got a lot of expertise in the quarterback position. I want to hear your take. Well, I'll try to be as brief as possible. When, when looking at McCarron, his strength over the other two quarterbacks is the fact that he's been in a pro-style offense, not just the last four years, the last eight, because they ran pro-style at Bama. His strengths are going to come in audibling out of a bad play, when, which is something you're not going to have to do in a preseason game because it's very vanilla on the defense. Occasionally, would he have to? Maybe. But that's what I'm going to look for. I'm going to look for his throws. I'm going to look for his footwork, just like all the other quarterbacks. The thing about Peterman is when you draft a quarterback in the fifth round, usually those quarterbacks are taken in the fifth because they can learn from their predecessor that's already there. He had zero comparable traits to Tyrod Taylor to learn how it's supposed to be done. He didn't have that. So therefore, he's, that's why you're saying he has those up and down days where he's like, oh, I do really good. And something happens, this and that. The thing with Allen, I'm going to look for, like I said before, with the footwork and everything like that. I'm going to see if he makes his reads, but if he doesn't make his reads and still completes the passes, that's what's going to set him apart from McCarron and Peterman. The fact that that arm is what he's going to have to ride to get the starting job here. And I like it like you, not worried about the score, don't care about picks. Okay, if he throws a pick, why did he throw that pick? Not just, oh, you see, Allie threw two picks. The guy's a bum. He's a bust. Da, 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 all those other no, I'm going to look at, did you see what happened? You never hear about a guy running a wrong route, do you? You don't hear the quarterback coming to the press. Prowell heard about running a wrong route. If you're going into a game and you're like, yeah, he ran the wrong route. You're never going to hear a quarterback say that. You're going to say, oh, we had some miscommunication on a couple plays and we have to iron those out. That's what you're going to do. But I'm going to look how these guys carry themselves on the field. If he does throw a pick, does he, does he, 
Does he go up to wide receiver? Does he does he start clapping and say, "All right, guys, I'll get it next time." I'm sorry. How does he uh, how does he interact on the sidelines with the coaches and everything after that? That's huge. Those little things are huge when it goes into determining who's going to be the leader of your team. Since we're talking about the Panthers, that's really a, playing the Panthers tomorrow. That's a really good point because I know for a fact I watched it happen. There was a game. Cam Newton, the quarterback who's going to be the starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. I think it was year no, well no, it was year two or three in his career. And they were playing the New York Giants on Monday Night Football. Newton had just thrown his third interception of the game. They're getting drilled by the Giants. They're just getting absolutely smothered. He throws his third pick and he goes to the bench and puts a towel over his head and doesn't talk to anybody. And Steve Smith, the wide receiver, came and sought him out and got into a fight with him on the sideline because he's like, you're, our, you're the guy. You're the quarterback. Be the leader here. you got to grow a set. Own your mistakes and let's learn from them. Don't let them sink this whole team because that's what you're doing. I've watched that happen to him, and since then, he's never really shooken that image from my mind, and I don't think he's ever really been a different guy. He is who he is. I want to see if our quarterbacks can be something different than that. You know, let's see if Peterman can come back from that embarrassing showing against the Chargers and the fact that he threw another pick in the game against Jacksonville. Let's see if he can start avoiding turnovers. Let's see if Allen can come out there and make some mistakes, rub some dirt on it, and come out and just continue to do the job. That's what this is all about, so everything should be taken with a grain of salt. Again, all of the quarterback hot takes are going to be out on Friday. I suggest you all invest in sunglasses because things are going to get hot. And now, folks, as we wrap up our AFC East Roundup Training Camp Edition, we have to close things out with the Miami Dolphins. Travis Wingfield. Soccer-style kicker. Graduated from Collier High, June 1976. Stetson University Honors Graduate, Class of 1980. Holds two NCAA Division I records, one for most points in a season, one for distance. Former nickname, The Mule. The first and only pro athlete ever to come out of Collier County and won a hell of a model of merit. Locked on Dolphins Podcast. But this is Miami, pal. Mr. Travis Wingfield, how are you doing tonight? Oh, you know, just day drinking on a Wednesday afternoon could not be any better. (laughs) Fantastic. Before we get too deep into this, congratulations to you, Travis. Locked on Dolphins, which is a lot of you know, it's part of the Locked on Podcast Network, has become one of the largest and most active outlets on the network. And Travis has recently been promoted to running the site. Is that correct? Yeah, all the Locked On sites, actually. We have a, a rebranding we're doing right now. 11 of the sites will continue to post continuous content, and the other sites will be geared towards just a podcast avenue. But I am the one in charge of all of those. So, yeah, good times in a Locked On network land. Fantastic. Round of applause for Travis Wingfield, a raving Dolphins fan. <laughs> 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 so we have you on tonight to kind of walk us through the Miami Dolphins offseason. You know, we've taken a look at the Patriots. We've taken a look at the Jets so far. Just trying to size up our opponents as we head into next year. When it comes to the Dolphins, I want to start off in a place, and I, I don't know if you've been asked any of these questions before, but I think for me it all starts with the head coach. And this is the Adam Gase saga. I mean, I think his situation to me 
as someone taking a 300-yard view of an opponent within my division, it's kind of a conundrum. Okay, now, when you, you let's take a look at this. Gase came to Miami after spending years as a play caller for the Chicago Bears, and the guy was labeled by everybody as the secret to Jay Cutler's best seasons, which gave everybody in Miami, you know, give you guys hope that he was going to bring Ryan Tannehill around, that you were going to see a similar, you know, kind of rounding to form of his game because he's been kind of a middle-of-the-road quarterback. Now, what a lot of Bills fans won't realize is that not only was he named the head coach, he was also handed play-calling duties and complete control of the roster from the day that he showed up. And that's something that I really want to ask you about here because entering his third season based on everything I've seen, I think there's more questions than answers here in regards to him as a head coach himself. Obviously, last season, something of an outlier. You lost your starting quarterback to a knee injury that you know probably should have been taken care of the previous offseason. And it kind of just derailed the entire train before it even got a chance to leave the station. There isn't a lot you can do when your starter goes down, and a dude who is supposed to be working in the booth, who loves to smoke, and is now part of a reality TV show with his wife, is somehow brought in to right the ship. That being said, these are the issues I have. First of all, this is the second consecutive offseason in which the coach has made comments that he's witnessed players quitting on the team. And he spoke a lot about a need to change things about the team, but it's the same two terms, culture and toughness. It's the second consecutive offseason that the offensive line has been retooled and reshuffled only to hear halfway through training camp that it's not gelling the way the staff wants it to. And... I don't know. I For me, it's the second year that there's still questions about the defense, which accounts for 59% of the Dolphins' spending, which is the second most in the NFL in terms of the percentage allocated to, on the salary cap. I, I mean, there's a ton of draft picks, and four of your team's top five most expensive players are on that side of the ball, yet they've underwhelmed. You've been very pro Gase and Tannehill, Travis. So walk me through this. Where are fans and where are you on him as a head coach and as far as being the guy who's going to get things done? Well, those might be two pretty different answers because, like you mentioned, you know, Adam Gaze, he spent the one year in Chicago with Jay Cutler, which gave him the best passer rating of his career. But prior to that, he was in Denver. And I like to go back to what his peers and what the people around him say about him. And when he was in Denver, Peyton Manning says, and John Elway can back this up too, they both agreed that Adam Gaze is one of the smartest football minds they've ever been around. And, and the play calling thing, you know, he's one of the best play callers in football. Jarvis Landry caught nine touchdown passes last year for a guy that cannot create separation in one-on-ones or down in the red zone. He got nine touchdowns because of the play calling of Adam Gaze. And you talked about the fact that he lost his quarterback last year. I mean, he's eight and five with Ryan Tannehill, which is about a 63 winning percentage without him. Not as good, obviously, but Jay Cutler, like you mentioned, he's more entertaining on reality TV than he is as a Dolphins quarterback. So the fact that, that experiment is over is the number one thing I'm most excited about. But Adam Gaze, for what he's been in Miami, a 16-16 and 16 head coach, one playoff appearance when we were coming off of an eight-year playoff drought prior to that. I think that he – you mentioned a couple of his downfalls, which there are question marks around those things. The ability to find a way to run a program that breeds success or that breeds players that have the right attitude. And he's made his own stamp on the roster this year because you mentioned that he has full control of the roster – 
But I'm not sure if that's really the case going back to 2016 and even 2017 because they had Mike Tannenbaum in there running the show, making all these trades, signing all these big free agent contracts. He was the one that put the big money out there for Ndamukong Sue and his connection through his uh, his agency when he was a player's agent or a coach's agent, whatever it was, before he got the job in Miami. So now Adam Gase kind of has his fingerprints all over the roster. And I think this year is going to be very telling in terms of what they are because he brought in guys like Danny Amendola, who's going to be in the right spot whenever you want him to be in that right spot. He brought in Albert Wilson to run this Percy Harvin type of role as a guy that can take snaps out of the backfield, run the jet sweeps. He's got Jakeem Grant to take the top off the defense with Kenny Stills. And now he's got Kenyon Drake, obviously, Frank Gore there to kind of be the steadying pace in the backfield there. So... Well, here's something, here's something I want to interject with, though. You're naming all these names of guys that on the RA, two points, are on the offensive side of the football, which would seem to tailor themselves towards his wheelhouse. Okay? Seems like you guys have made a lot of moves, not trades, not draft picks, which, according to you, if I'm trusting you on that, then that's Mike Tannenbaum's world. But it sounds like he's been very much involved with the personnel and who comes and who goes on the offensive side of the ball. I'm assuming he probably had a lot of input with the offensive linemen that were brought in. He was in Denver around the time of Brock Osweiler, who is now currently on your roster again as a backup quarterback. I, that's. Do you think that's a good idea? I don't really get too concerned about the third-string quarterback. I mean, if he plays, the season's over anyway. And I think David Phelps will be the backup. And if he plays, the season's over anyway. But I think most teams would agree if their backup quarterback comes in, the season's going to be over anyway. And, and everyone that disagrees at that point to so the Philadelphia Eagles. That's a once in a, you know, I think the last time that happened was Kurt Warner back in 2001. So, or whatever the year that was. So if, you know, if your quarterback goes down, you're pretty much fucked as it is. So if that happens, whatever, go top five draft pick, get the quarterback in the draft next year. We'll move on from that point. But as far as Adam Gaze and building the offense the way he wants to, yeah, that it has his fingerprints all over it. As far as the rest of the team and the draft classes we have, Chris Greer is actually the GM, the head of scouting down there in Miami. And his last three draft classes have actually yielded some pretty good returns. We got, I think Charles Harris is going to be a pretty good player for us for a long time. Raekwon McMillan, they can't speak highly enough about him. Minka Fitzpatrick, for my money, is going to be one of the best players in this entire draft class. Obviously, Kenyon Drake has been you know, in his short time, been a very explosive running back for us too. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a change in direction. I think the Dolphins and what Steven Ross has tried to build for a long time, it didn't work out for him for a long time because he wasn't really sure what he was doing. And you hope that now that he has this kind of structure in place with Mike Tannenbaum, Chris Greer, Adam Gaze, you hope for different results, but I guess we're going to have to wait to find out. Well, and that's, I guess it's where we pick things up here. Because the guys that are going to dictate it are the guys that are on the field. And that's what training camp is all about. Finding out what you have in the cupboard, who's going to make up your 53-man roster in, what, five weeks? We have five weeks until the start of actual football. It's incredible to me. I, I'm still just, I, I'm still in shock of the fact that tomorrow night is the first, like, meaningful live-action football I'm going to get to watch. It's incredible. I mean, so starting on the offensive side of the ball, your 2017 rankings, let me, let me read these off for you. 25th in yards per game, 28th in points per game, 18th in passing yards, 29th in rushing yards, 11th in sack allowed. Sacks allowed. Now, I understand that you're, when you're kind of flip-flopping between Cutler and Matt Moore and you're trying to, I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like you being in the water and me handing you an anchor and then telling you to swim. 
<laughs> so I get it that the numbers weren't great. But I've got some questions about the offensive side of the ball. First of all, why the hell would Cam Wake hit Ryan Tannehill the way that he did in practice? Like, what was it, a week ago? I mean, he's wearing a red non-contact jersey coming back from an ACL tear. Cam Wake can't be colorblind, can he? Yeah, I didn't see it, so I don't really know what happened. I, I read about it, but I mean, I also watched Hard Knocks last year, and Gerald McCoy knocked out Jameis Winston in a practice, too. So I guess it happened sometimes, but I didn't see it, so I really have no idea. <laughs> How has Tannehill looked, by all accounts, coming back from that injury and the surgery? Well, the number one thing is just the fact that he's healthy and moving again. I, I, you know, When he got hurt last year, it was coming off of the ACL in 2016 in December. Didn't get it fixed surgically, went through all the stem cell stuff and the rehab, and that obviously lasted for about four or five days of training camp. And what he got hurt on in training camp last year was a scramble play off to the right side, and he just planted awkwardly. The knee buckled. He went down. Season was over right there on that day. And then in the, in the scrimmage on Saturday, they had a team scrimmage at Hard Rock Stadium, and he ran the ball a couple of times in a very similar play to that scramble to the right. And he was just fine looking good. So as long as he's healthy, I mean, the thing about Ryan Tannehill is you might not love him in terms of his ceiling and what he can be, but his floor is very high too, because he's never been like a bottom tier quarterback. He's always been at least, you know, average. So as long as he's healthy, I I feel good about it. I mean, before Gase, when everyone was like, oh, he's going to fix Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill wasn't exactly Matt Leiner. I mean, he was a a decent quarterback here. Now, another Dolphin, you kind of mentioned earlier, Jarvis Landry. This guy can't help but make waves. I, with your fan base, with my fan base, I mean, everybody's got their eyebrows up every time this guy speaks because he just never seems to shut up. He's always got something <laughs> to say. Now, obviously, <laughs> with his loss, he was a talented player. And to your point, you said that Gase kind of schemed a lot of his touchdowns. He's never been known for touchdowns. His thing is yards and yards after the catch. Obviously, the wide receiver group is going to come under scrutiny by people this time of year, especially fans and your opponents, when you let who is the guy who is arguably the most talented player in that position group leave. So to this point in camp, have, has the wide receiver group, I know Jakeem Grant's a really good receiver prospect. He showed some potential. He's had flashes here and there last season of a guy who can make some flash plays. What is the status of the wide receiver core, though, coming into actual live-action football here in 2018? It's very jumbled right now because you have five guys vying for targets in the offense, and they really all could be the primary guy on any given day. I mentioned that Albert Wilson comes over. He got a nice little payday from the Dolphins, and he was behind a group of really good skill players in Kansas City, whether it was Tyreek Hill, Kareem Hunt, Travis Kelsey, whoever it was in front of him. But he has this very unique ability to break tackles. He actually broke one fewer tackle last year than Jarvis Landry, and he had 100 less targets in the passing game. So he's that same type of player, a screen type of player, you know, shovel passes on the inside, little flat routes, little hook routes, that type of thing where he catches the pass underneath and makes guys pay afterwards. Jakeem Grant, you mentioned it. He has, I I know it's an extremely small sample size, but his yards per target is up there with the Antonio Browns, the Mike Evans, the Julio Jones, those guys, when he did get on the field at the end of the year. And you're going to have packages built in for these two guys that can find a way to exploit matchups on the defense and take advantage of, possibly going with 12 personnel where you have these speedy receivers, tight ends like Mike Kosicki that can flex out wide. You get the base defense on the field, so you have two or three linebackers on the field, and then you hit them with some deep patterns that they can't handle because you got a linebacker on Mike Kosicki or a, a safety on Jakeem Grant. And that's where the idea comes in, a matchup-based offense that spreads the ball around and throws the football to the open guy. 
Now, I can buy into some of that, but you did. I just want to point out and remind you, you said the name Jakeem Grant in the same sentence as Antonio Brown and Julio Jones. I'm just going to point well, when that you, out. When you, you phrase it that it. way, it sounds bad, but you put context <laughs> to it, I mean, it works out. Hey, who gives a damn about context, all right? Sometimes they just like making people look bad. Can I? Can I <laughs> That's the world we live in, man. I, I appreciate it. I love you, Travis. <laughs> Give me the strongest in your opinion, and the weakest, in your opinion, position groups on the offensive side of the ball heading into 2018. I mean, I have a suspicion. I, I mean, when I, I just look at your offensive line, and it seems like there's a lot of – you have a lot of older players on that side of the ball, so I'm really interested to see where you go with this. Well, Tunzel, Tunzel's in his third year. James is in his fifth year. Jesse Davis is in his second year. And then you have Dan Kilgore, Josh Sitton. And, you know, Josh Sitton, he got cut from the Bears, but he's long been one of the best pass-protecting left guards in the NFL. Yes. And the offense is built around the strength of Ryan Tannehill, getting the football out of his hands quickly. And this group is supposed to be able to pass-protect well. But you mentioned their weakness. They don't really get any push in the running game. And if you can't develop a running game with Ryan Tannehill, his best asset – is off the play-action pass. He has been a top-five passer in the league several times in his career off the play-action pass. So you want to be able to establish that running game, use the heat in Miami to your advantage, and then use the play-action passing game off of that. And if you can't establish that, it makes things tougher. Third and seven-plus is not a good spot to be in, especially for this offense. So I think the offensive line's run blocking, like you mentioned, is the biggest weakness. The biggest strength to me, it, I would say the receiving room because you have five guys that are unique. They can play all five positions. Actually, I'm going to say four guys because fuck Devontae Parker. But the other four guys, can really, they can really do a lot in terms of playing every position on the offense. They're, they're multifaceted. They have speed to burn, all the things you look for in a receiving group. So I'll say the receivers are the strongest, offensive line be the weakest. Now, in, in the next question, I guess kind of feeds into the fact that the offensive line is the weakest. You have some pretty good pass pass rushing DNs. There's a reason that you know Cam Wake and Robert Quinn make up. I mean, they're two of the top five highest paid guys in the team. How have your tackles held up in practice, as far as you can tell, against two very good pass rushers? Not well. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, so Cam Wake, you guys know what Cam Wake is. He's got 92 sacks. He came into the league at age 28. He's a fucking beast that is just a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. One of the best pass rushers to ever really do it. Leads the league in sacks since he came into the league. So he's always forever going to be immortalized by Dolphins fans and everyone else alike. So I don't ever question anybody going up against him. He abuses right tackles every single Sunday, every single week. I've watched so, him pull Jordan Mills' pants down yeah. on national television. I've seen it happen. He, he got him in Chicago on a pretty – there's a GIF <laughs> up on uh, Google. If you just type in uh, Cameron Wake, Jordan Mills' GIF on Google, you'll find uh, him just discarding him in Chicago. That's pretty good. Oh. So, I mean, Cam Wake, he puts his abuse on guys on right tackles all the time. But you mentioned Robert Quinn, and, you know, they gave up a fourth-round draft pick to get him. He's, he's owed $11 million this year. That's a lot of fucking money for a guy that hasn't had a really productive season since 2013. But, man, I'm excited about Charles Harris because this is a guy that he had like two and a half sacks last year, but he was so close so many times. And you've seen that before with rookie pass rushers where they get these pressures on the quarterback. They get hurries. They get hits. They can't quite finish it off. If he can just add another counter move to what he has – in his pass rush arsenal already, he can be a really impactful pass rusher. And he even kicked inside last year sometimes and mm. rushed the passer from a defensive tackle spot. So I'm excited to see what he does. But, yeah, they have given these guys trouble. And the big issue on the offensive line, man, has been all these fucking pre-snap penalties. These guys keep jumping off sides. And it, 
you go first and 15, it makes things so much tougher. You guys obviously know that, but oh, yeah. this is an offense that can't overcome things like that. So if that continues into this year, it's going to be another fucking disaster year. Well, since we're talking about defense, I want to stick with that trend, and we're going to stick to switch to the defensive side of the ball. Your 2017 rankings, you were 29th in scoring defense. Now, I, I, I'll add the caveat to that. I don't know. I'm just taking those statistics from NFL.com. I don't know if pick sixes and fumbles that were taken back for touchdowns. I mean, you guys did get thumped by the Baltimore Ravens defense last year. I don't know if all of those defensive touchdowns are taken into account in that. But 29th in scoring defense, 16th in yards allowed, 29th in turnovers, 26th in sacks, 20th in first downs, 22nd in rushing touchdowns, and 23rd in passing touchdowns allowed. I mean, that's... And first in linebackers named Kiko. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's funny you say that because, as I mentioned earlier, your front seven is so much invested in it. You just talked about Robert Quinn not really being all that effective, but he is the most expensive player on your roster right now. Uh, Kiko Alonso is in your top five. Allen Branch is in your top five and Cameron Wake. These are all guys who are the highest paid players on your team in your front seven. Multiple draft picks at the linebacker spots. This front seven has been heavily invested in, and yet, I mean, the results last year weren't good. Do you think that what you guys are fielding this year is enough to reverse that trend? Yeah, you can make a good call back here to the Mike Tannenbaum stuff because he was the one that gave Andre Branch that crazy three-year, $27 million contract, which is not bad money for a viable pass rusher, but Andre Branch is not that. He gave he gave TJ McDonald a big contract after seeing him in like two fucking preseason games last year, and he was serving an eight-game suspension. So I, that was a weird one. We obviously drafted Minka this year that is going to take over for McDonald as well. And then also Kiko Alonso got a big contract extension after you know six or seven good games. So Mike Tannenbaum loves giving out these big contracts to other teams' trash that comes over and has a few good games <laughs> for the Dolphins. And you look at the draft this year, and it looks like they almost went and attacked all of those moves that Tannenbaum made for direct replacements. You talk about Jerome Baker out of Ohio State. You talk about Charles Harris last year from Missouri taking over Andre Branch and then Minka Fitzpatrick for McDonald. But talking about the front seven, I mean, you let Sue go, and he's, he's one of the best defensive tackles in football. Don't ever get it twisted that Ndamukong Sue is not a great, great player. But you hope that what he does by departing is frees up some more money to pay some of these other guys, you know, giving a contract extension to Xavier Howard in the future. Bobby McCain, Rashad Jones got his big payday as well. But I think the front seven, it's it, it, it all comes down to how the offense performs because they want to play from a lead. They want to play out in front and rush the passer. And last year, the offense was one of the worst in terms of time, time of possession. They went three and out more than almost any other offense in the NFL. And they had a bunch of turnovers in their own zone that put the defenses back up against the wall. So okay. your entire scheme and philosophy kind of got thrown out the window when Tannehill got hurt. I, I hate just putting everything on Ryan Tannehill, but fuck no, no, man, no, Jay no, Cutler no, no, no. was so bad last year that it I just watched. had a negative impact on everybody. I watched a game. I watched you guys get whitewashed twice. And I watched those games just to, I got up early to watch you guys get your heads kicked in in England. Why? Because I'm a sick man. Okay, I just don't because I take pleasure in that. Well, I yeah, think, sure. I think I just just to put it into a frame of reference for you. I think I drank more watching the Patriots lose to the Chiefs in their the, that opening night game. I think I drank more during that than I did during the Bills' first game or first home game. 
Dude, how much fun was that game, that Patriots uh, game last year? Fantastic. And I feel the same way about watching you guys. <laughs> I mean, th- there was a game against the Ravens, like I said, where it was just what, Matt Moore is just out there turning the ball over at will. And then the Jay Cutler against the Saints, where the Saints are trying almost to give you things, and you're just yeah. not taking them. I well, mean, hey, hey you, you said you got up early to watch that game. You're at 9 o'clock on the East Coast. Picture being a West Coast guy for a 6 o'clock. Kickoff. Oh my God! You must have been miserable, sir. And that yeah, it, was, actually, it was fun. It was that, fun. I was gonna say that actually makes me happy. I, <laughs> I, I'm smiling about it. <laughs> yeah, you probably had, you probably had kegs and eggs. <laughs> no, he says no. I had, I had sleep in my eyes. What I had. <laughs> so w- now, looking over your roster as a whole, what new faces? Give me one on offense and one on defense that you expect to make the biggest impact in 2018. On offense, Mike Kosicki, because the red zone offense had struggled to score touchdowns for a long time. And every day the Dolphins social media posts a, a video of Mike Kosicki in a contested pass, and he hauls it in. It's like, how the hell did he catch that football? Because he's an ultimate rebounder, goes up and gets the ball. And he actually led college football last year in contested catches in 75%, 9 out of 12 he, he uh, pulled in in those instances. On defense, man – I want to say Minka Fitzpatrick because I think that he's just he's everything you want in a player in terms of the fact that he's there at 930 at night on a Friday night working in the film room. And I know that's a cliche to say, but you you have the, the history that are backing up at Alabama. You know, only two guys have won the Beneric and the Thorpe Award, Charles Woodson, Patrick Peterson, and the third was Minka Fitzpatrick. So I think the two rookies, the first two draft picks, Mike Kosecki improves the red zone offense. Minka Fitzpatrick helps more sub-package defense where the Dolphins were absolutely dreadful last year on third and long. So I'll go with the two rookies. Well, now, I guess, so I've got a question on each. I mean, first and foremost, that's a lot of pressure to leave on the shoulders of rookies. Gesicki, do you see them in his utilization? I mean, is Gase uses, scheming to use him in the mold of like a Greg Olson? I mean, you look at a team like Carolina who doesn't really have a lot of, they don't have a lot of top flight receiving talent. So they use Greg Olson oftentimes as a receiver, and in truth, he's probably a better receiver than a blocker. And I've heard that that's kind of Gesicki's thing right now, too, is he's a better pass catcher than he is a blocker. I mean, how are they going to scheme to use him, and what kind of you know, parallels do you make to that? Oh, Gesicki has never seen a block he liked. Let's, let's get that out in the <laughs> open right now. I mean, he's not going to block anybody. But you can do things with him to flex him out, to get him in that Y-ISO matchup. And you go back to like 2013, 2014 Denver Broncos with Julius Thomas. They had Demarius Thomas. They had Wes Welker. But they found matchup exploitations with Julius Thomas on that offense. And that's the same thing I expect from Mike Kosicki, where he can get that tight lineup on the, you know, an inline lineup and go up against a strong safety or possibly a linebacker and take him to the corner pylon for a big play. Well, that I see you was, got, so, you got that something. Was, I see it. <laughs> that, that was back when you had uh, Peyton Manning on the uh, Broncos offense. So hope, he's okay. Hope, he's all right. Hope, he's, he's okay. So hopefully it pans out the same way for you guys down there in Dolphins land. <laughs> Travis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Guys, he's a great follow. hes I'll say he's probably one of the more level-headed guys to talk football about with in terms of what's going on with our team, their team. It's worth a follow, trust me. And that's reciprocated both ways for you guys. I appreciate you having me on. It's at Wingfield NFL, my last name, W-I-N-G-F-I-E-L-D. The show is at Locked On Fins, and of course, LockedOnDolphins.com and Locked On Dolphins Podcast. At Wingfield NFL on Twitter, Locked On Dolphins Podcast, as usual. It's fantastic. Drew, next week, we're doing a show. You know who's going to be here? Who's that? Mom and Dad. 
Oh, Mama Kruger. I can't wait to oil up these guns and flex them in front of her. Yeah, oil up your flabby tries. Look how they sag down like your podcasting career. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My parents are coming in this weekend. They're going to be here for like a week. So I'll be over them being here. uh, They get here Friday. So I'll be over them being here Saturday morning. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to be here for a week. So next Wednesday... They might even be here. They've never met you. So Fantastic. I can, I can It'll only, be the greatest podcast. I can only we've imagine ever done. what that's gonna be like. It'll be one of the one of the best podcasts we've ever done. Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. Where can people find your work in the Sunday Drive? They can find us uh, on Twitter at HTAG Sports. If they go on to YouTube, they can find us hashtag sports radio. We just concluded our hundredth episode. We did a we did a kind of a mismatch of all the first hundred oh, episodes. Oh, you, get out of here. And I haven't been on that show. You guys obviously know know this you guys are going to be there for 200 obviously so um check it out it's actually it's it's like a blooper slash <laughs> it's one of the not to give it away too much obviously for all seven of you that watched it um the uh one of the opening lines was that the bills schedule they don't travel any further west than houston mm-hmm. and um paul decided to give me that kind of that, that notice and i said well good because the furthest zay jones is from la the better oh my god Folks, we got to get out of here. Thank you so much. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pile Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.